0: Good to pray. Well, this passage is actually a start of something new. Um, I didn't feel right about starting with a passage about putting somebody's head on a platter for the first of the year. Um, So that's why me and Peter decided to start with the second week of the year. Uh, (laughs) But believe it or not, this passage is the start of something new. It's the start of something moving on to the narratives. Moving on from Jesus' teachings into his actions. And it is just always great to be a start of something new, right? Um, it's always great to be something, you know, just to have something new, whether it be new rhythms or a new baby or new coffee or if you're fasting coffee, I apologize for making you really upset because you really want coffee, um, But sometimes a new season is not always triggered by pleasant events. As Lemony Snicket knows, it may be a series of unfortunate events. 2022's first headlines. And I I remember reading it because I was like, okay, what is the first headlines? The first headlines were this. Severe storms spreading across the country. Great. Wonderful. What a great start. You know, we've seen people getting caught overnight and buried alive in snowstorms. And we also saw the same things in just out, outside of Islamabad, and where over 22 died, and some of them from carbon monoxide poisoning. The COVID Omicron variant seems to be spreading profusely, causing many of the school calendars across the nation to postpone schools. And so you ask me, where is the goodness of 2022? Where is this new season? Wouldn't this be the year that we would finally break out of a global pandemic? Well, in the closing of an old season, and the start of a new one, there's always that fresh promise of expectation. But what happens when that season that we dreamed up goes south? When a new season turns bitter against our expectations, how do we respond? We're going to see that in three ways today in our text. If you could stay with me in chapter 14. It says, At the time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and this is why these miraculous powers had at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So we'll stop there. But what we see here is that when King Herod heard the fame of Jesus, it gives us a really important glimpse of what he thought about Jesus, a little profile on Herod. Herod was the son of Herod the Great, who we know tried to infamously wipe out all the Hebrew firstborn sons in Bethlehem in that region when Jesus was born. And so when Herod the Great died, he split up his kingdom three ways, one of which was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was called the Tetrarch, which means the leader of the fourth part. There's actually three sons and a daughter. And so he was the leader and controlled the Galilee and the Perea region, which is also includes Palestine, the area in which Jesus grew up and he lived in. Herod then was the principal ruler of Jesus' region. And in his capital city, which was Tiberius, was only eight miles south of Jesus's. Head, headquarters, if you will. So he was so close, eight miles away, and it was only a matter of time that he heard reports of Jesus, of this Jesus who was doing not only miracles, but he was healing. He was healing the sick, he was restoring the blind, he was restoring those who could not talk, he was healing the lepers, he was preaching the kingdom of God, and it was only a matter of time in which he actually heard of Jesus. But instead of investigating Jesus, instead of saying, there's something about this Jesus that I cannot hold back from myself, but I need to go after. Instead, he resorted to superstition and supernaturalism. What we see here is that Herod dismisses Jesus as literally just a John the Baptist reincarnate. Um, whom he had imprisoned about a year and a half before. And he conveys this, this mistaken view of a resurrection, probably from his Pharisaic beliefs, with a bit of nervous superstition. You know when you get faced with something you cannot explain and you just say something totally silly? This is what happened, I think, to Herod. The scene goes back, and I think this is a flashback. It goes to about a year and a half before, when John the Baptist spoke against um, Herod Antipas. And what we see here is that a little bit of background on Herod, he was already supposedly happily married, but the problem was that it was a political uh, marriage. It was something uh, that he decided to do in order to marry the daughter of another reign, a sovereign, in order to keep the peace. And they stayed married for 15 years Until, like a scene out of a Netflix movie, he fell madly in love with Herodias, which was actually his half-brother, Philip's wife. And you know what love does. You know when, or what your sense of love does. It changes you. And it deceives you. When you have this lust for somebody, and it changed him. And so he decides to go against his conscience and conscience and do this incestuous marriage, which John the Baptist was courageous enough to say, "You know what? that is at odds with God's law, and it is not lawful for you to have her. Think about, have you ever gone and then faced the nervousness of coming up against somebody and saying to them something that would say that you are opposed to what they were did they did or their actions and John the Baptist was courageous enough to do that even if it landed him in prison in fact Herod wanted to kill him but he feared the people because John had some major influence at the time then you fast forward Herod had this great festival in his honor at the at the, uh, the palace uh, where the same one was where John was in prison. On this faithful day, it's, it's wise to assume that this was probably set up. Uh, Herodias' daughter, Salome, maybe only 12 to 14 years only at the time, probably performed a highly sensual dance that got the already drunk Herod uh, to do something that he would regret. And he makes an oath, which was probably unnecessary, but it was to say, you know what, I'm going to do whatever you asked I mean, he's just taken by this girl. And the daughter asks her mother, who uh, the mother manipulates her daughter to eliminate eliminate this threat to her husband's reign. Hey, this guy spoke against our marriage. Destroy him. Ask for his head on a platter. And she wants to eliminate this accuser, which wasn't necessarily out of the question, considering... The family tree, remember, Herod the Great executed his own wives and his children because, and, uh, because he was scared that they would take over his throne, his own family. And he suffered from this incredible paranoia. Well, this is where Herod should have sobered up. Even though he was intoxicated and not in his right mind, the Scripture says this, that he knew and he was sorry. But the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He would rather resort to pleasing people rather than going with his conscience and was willing to violate his conscience. Where John the Baptist was a man who was courageous enough to go with his conscience we see courage in John and his, and his disciples and cowardice in Herod. And so he gives the orders. John's is beheaded. His head is on a plate, is presented to the daughter, Salome, and Salome says, "Here, there's the fruit of your vengeance." Verse 12, his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. The very end, we see the cowardice of Herod, but we see the courage of the disciples of John. They were faithful, even to the bitter end. And if you ask any of those disciples, I'm pretty sure they would one by one say to you, this was not the end that I was expecting. My leader, John the Baptist, I did not want to see him go this way. This must have been excruciating to have to give him a funeral without a head. And so they went ahead and gave him an honorable, proper burial, spent time in that morning grieving, probably since John's family was probably deceased at the time. And then these disciples came to Jesus and let him know. And although the text does not say this, we see a transfer probably of authority. They probably knew that their leader was, was gone with the Lord, but they knew their allegiance aligned with Jesus, and so they probably put their lives under his authority. So again, we see courage in John, but it's contrasted by the cowardice of Herod. And so that's the first season in which the season turns to be a bitter season. The second season is, is with Jesus, because even though Jesus wanted communion In verse 13 and 14, Jesus actually doesn't get it. Let's look in verse 13 to 14. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where it was just really a big struggle for you um, in which you... Um Just wanted to be in a place, but you you heard tragic news and you didn't you didn't know how to deal with it. you didn't have any um, categories you didn't know what buckets to put it in um, and I, I know that I dealt with that um, over eleven years ago in which I remember a time I was struggling that we had lost our child and it was early on in the pregnancy, but it was about six to eight weeks um, when Christine uh, suffered a miscarriage. And that was the first time, I would say, the first time that pain and the thought of cynicism and bitterness just hit me straight between the eyes. I mean, I didn't know how to handle that. I knew how to handle a kid's breakup with a a teenage breakup I knew how to handle church situations. I knew how to handle um, when somebody is fighting with somebody else and how to break that up and how to lead them to reconciliation. I did not know how to handle my wife, and she was struggling with questions I didn't have any answers for. I felt completely inept. I felt completely um, at loss. And I remember, I think I was more prideful in that I didn't, I was more upset that I didn't know the answers, that I was more concerned about caring for Christine. So I went away, and I just couldn't handle anymore. I was telling people, or not telling people, but just sharing with people left and right, but I needed a solace. I needed to get away. And so I went away to, uh, I guess, my, um, my, my, my prayer closet, my place in which I could be alone with God, and all I needed to do was just get away. And, and it was in that moment I was able to peel away from everybody's entanglements and just to get kind of realize and sit before the Lord and just say, God, share with me whatever you want to share with me. There's a guy that was hanging around, a young man that was just hanging around. And he wasn't working for the park. He was in a park. And he just, it was so clear. He just wanted to hang out. He wanted to talk. And I'm just like, okay, Lord, the last thing I want to do is talk to somebody when I'm in my pain. <laughs> so, and I tried to earnestly pray and I tried to like, you know, turn this way on the picnic bench and um, try to act like I was uh, I was antisocial, which for me doesn't really work. And um, <laughs> and I was like, Lord, the last thing I want to do is talk to this person. And so, but God, if you, if you really want him to talk to me let him be the first one to, to say something. And he says something like, hey, man, how's the weather? And I'm just like, oh, gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I don't want to come here and talk about your stuff because I probably know you got some stuff. And sure enough, the guy had some stuff, and he was dealing with some addictions and some other things, and I was talking with them, and I was transparent about The time came when I was able to share about my pain, including... And the Lord was just saying, just share about your miscarriage. Share about the pain that you're dealing with right now and how you're dealing with that. And remember that was the turning point in our conversation. I remember that was the time in which we started talking about our mutual need for Jesus or mutual need for Jesus. And then I started sharing with them about that and he began to, to see his need for God and he received the Lord right then and there. I never saw him again, but I remember that day. Sometimes you just want to go and seek a desolate place, be away with God, communion with God. But people, in a sense, get in the way. <laughs> get in the way. I don't know about you, if people are the people that get in the way of your communion with God, but what are the things that keeps you away from the Lord? Is it social media? Is it movies? Is it games? Is it... Maybe something that you have planned so carefully for this fast this month, and you said, You know what? I'm going to lay aside. I know this is a stronghold in my life. I want to put this before you, Lord, and say, God, you take it. And you set it up. You got your demands, your pressures are all out of the way. And then all of a sudden, things just go haywire. Your kids all get sick one by one. Or maybe you have to cancel your flight because you're about to go on vacation and then you get a call from the, the, the animal, uh, the dog sitters and said, you know, sorry, he got infected with the disease. He can't stay here and you got to pick him up. And then you had to cancel your flight. Maybe you got tested positive for COVID and you had to walk away from a very important meeting. What is that thing that gets you taken away from that communion with God. Because I know that when I get a certain thing taken away, I know the last thing I want to do is to exercise compassion. And I love how, you know, in this, the Gospels, we can picture Jesus feeling, touching, experiencing things the way that we do. And I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, he must have been really badly needing some communion with God. But the crowds wanted to equally have communion with Jesus, and nothing would stand in their way. In fact, the, the, the scriptures probably hint to that Jesus was headed to Bethsaida, which is on the northeast end of the lake, and, and the people probably went all the way around to the top of the lake, went two miles across the ford where the river enters Galilee, just to meet Jesus on the other side. So imagine their excitement. They're like, whoa, Jesus, yeah, I see him. He's on the boat. There's Jesus and his disciple. Oh, there's Peter. And Jesus and disciples, they come, and they're just like, oh, man, <laughs> why? <laughs> why is there a great, he's this huge crowd waiting for me? Now, I don't know if Jesus said that, but I'm pretty sure that's what his disciples was thinking. All Jesus wanted to do was just mourn over a friend. He wanted to be alone with his father, and yet that didn't even happen at all. And that's why I think this is so powerful Jesus was more than just on an empty cup. Jesus was just empty. And yet, Jesus was full of compassion. B.B. Warfield points out that compassion is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to Jesus. Just think about that. Jesus goes to a place in which he received literally a jumble jet flying up his, his house. Oh, he didn't have a house, but literally, just punch him between the nose. And all he wants is time with the presence of a holy and a loving Father. And Jesus saw the great crowd and the first thing he said and felt was compassion and he healed their sick that's your Jesus that's a never failing savior a God who is human like us but yet so unlike us in his compassion not once did Jesus complain said, that he was too tired to minister to people. Not once did Jesus say, you guys do the work, I'm dead tired. Sure, he was sleeping on the boat during the storm. It's not that, though. Jesus never got tired. He was fully human, 100% human, and 100% deity and God. But his physical exhaustion was never a means to stop loving people. Indeed, his compassion came out of a deep com- communion with his father. He was so saturated with the spirit of God that even in his weakness, he was able to serve others and devote the energy to healing people. And it was tiring even, um, even on one retreat that we had at Hope that we were praying for, Alan Nipper's leg over and over. And I remember praying not once but twice and I think even three times. And we all took turns. And this was like a retreat setting. So, you know, you'd be the most like, comfortable and the most rested, right? And I remember feeling just absolutely tired. But not Jesus. There's a lot of times that we got to admit that we're not Jesus, and this is the time. As Peter did preach last week, sometimes we read the narrative in Acts 1, 1 through 1-14, and we don't feel like we have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us. We don't feel like that we have the capacity to do anything that we can describe it as, yes, that's spiritual power. There are days when which we feel empty, we feel drained, we feel exhausted. And I'm refreshed because this is where, this is exactly where Jesus invites and brings us to himself. And also he brings, the Lord sovereignly brings people who need his touch, who need compassion, who need his care, probably to a season in the time in which they didn't feel like they had anything to give. You know, and, and today I just felt like just that utter inadequacy of just saying, like, how, how do I present this so familiar text in such a way that it's compelling for you at Hope? I, I, I was just struggling with that. Do I, do I share what I read on the news? Do I share about the TikTok video about uh, Sesame Street and how they had a spoof on if I give a mouse a stone instead of a, if I give a mouse a cookie? Do I share from the book that I'm reading? Do I need to be culturally relevant? Do I need to make the text more exciting than it is? And honestly, I go through waves of just trying to figure out, okay, is this more powerful? I feel like I have nothing next to, next, uh, ne- ne- nothing left to give. And then the Spirit of God just speaks to me and says, this is where I want you to be. It's where you are at. Nothing show you that Jesus is everything. And maybe that's what you're going through in this time. Maybe that's what you're going through in this fast, and you're beginning to see the wisdom of what Pastor Tim Keller says, that you only realize your need for Jesus is enough when Jesus is all that you have. That's what the disciples were learning as we wrap up this passage, when the disciples have next to nothing. Jesus shows He has everything. I'm not going to read it again. What I'm going to say is this is that later in this um, evening, they're tired, the disciples are ready to take a nap, take a siesta. They're ready to pack it up. And in fact, that's probably the most loving thing for the disciples to suggest. Hey, it is mid-afternoon. That word has like a mid-afternoon to evening type of field, It's probably mid-afternoon. Let these people come, go home. We're in a desolate place. There's no H-E-B here. In fact, there's nothing around here. Get them, before, get them to their homes before dark, because we're all out of food. You know, our igloos and our lunch boxes are empty. I mean, if there was a time to make sure that they had time for travel and time to love your people, that time was then. But Jesus says, knowingly says, this is not the time just to send the people away. Jesus says, it is not right. Do not send them away. They need not to go away. You give them something to eat. And I imagine that the disciples were looking at Jesus and saying, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Are you kidding me? We have a bunch of maybe some fish bones and some pickles you want me to give my leftover pickles to a crowd of over 5,000 people? Come on, Jesus. And Jesus is going to be like, yep, that's what I want you to do. And so Jesus goes around and uh, Jesus sends his disciples out. And the disciples said, okay, well, I guess we better go scrounge up something. Because, you know, sure, Jesus is going to do something like make food appear out of thin air. <laughs> I can't go fish for a 1,000 fish. They should have remembered. They should have had a flashback of their own when these disciples were fishing on the wrong side of the boat and Jesus said, go on the other side and go fish. And they fished. Even though that was completely the wrong thing to do in fishing terminology, they had so much fish that their boats, both of their boats began to sink. They did not, they were not in a place where they were empty of God's works, they should have seen it, they should have thought it, and they should have remembered that, but they forgot who Jesus was. And God is saying to us today, have you forgotten who I am? am. You do not send these people away. You bring them to me. I have something to display to you. I have something you need and that is compassion for people but the time is spring. The grass is lush. The streams are flowing and Jesus says come here. I'm going to show you what I can do in my power with just five bread loaves and two fish. (laughs) And Jesus directs them to give them the bread and probably no more than like a hot dog bun. We're eating some hot dog buns today. He looks up to heaven and he says a blessing and he says maybe the common prayer of, Blessed art thou, O Lord God, the King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. Then he gives the food to the disciples, who gives it to the people and they are filled. Look at what the text says, that the text says, And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. (laughs) A lot of people kind of, you know, allegorize this and say, oh, the 12 baskets mean this and the 12 baskets mean the tribes of Israel and and all that stuff. But what Jesus was saying is that this is not a coincidence Jesus is saying that he is the bread of life. Those who eat from the bread of life shall never hunger, and those who drink from me, who believe in me, shall never thirst, John 6, 35. And Jesus is saying that there is no global you know, supply or chain, supply chain shortage in my books. And get it, y'all, this is not just 5,000 men. This is probably total. We're thinking about 15,000 people fed. You just need to come to me with a few breadcrumbs and a few smelly dried fish, maybe a pickle, but I'm that big. (laughs) I'm just reminded. You know, George Mueller, who lived in the Victorian area in Bristol, and he had an incredible faith in God's supply, and he had never asked for a material need for the orphanage, never asked for money. He just trusted in God to provide. And the story goes that the children are dressed, and they're ready for school. There's no food for them to eat, the housekeeper would say, and informed George Mueller before he asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit down at the tables. He thanked God for the food, and he waited And he knew that God would provide food for the children just as he always did. And within a few minutes, (laughs) the baker from the city knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, I, I, I just, last night I could not sleep. And I just felt like I needed to bring you some bread this morning. Here's three batches. I'll bring it in. Soon there was a knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage, and the milk would spoil uh, by the time the wheel was fixed. So he said, You know what, George, can you use some free milk? And he smiled as he brought in 10 large cans of milk, which was just enough for 300 thirsty children. I'm not saying that you take the same approach for dinner tonight. Um, I'm not saying that you take the same approach if you have some major financial struggles and you go out and buy a multi-million dollar house and trust that you think that God's going just gonna fill in. But what I wanna encourage us with and leave us with is that Jesus is the same God of George Mueller. He's the same God of the five bread loaves two fish and he is the same God of Abraham Jacob and Isaac and he's is the same God who said let there be light and there was light Jesus is enough and maybe you're in a time and a season in which things are bitter and things are a struggle and things don't make sense, things completely flew haywire, things have gone self. But remember that Jesus can take our meager, our emptiness, our lack, and turn it in and feed and satisfy not only us, but it can satisfy 15,000 hungry men, and women, and children. I'll be very straight with you. This fast is not kind of gone the way I planned. We had these prayer calendars. We had these, like, prayer journals that all my family is joining in. My, my, my kids, I'm so excited that they started to take the, the Gospels challenge to read the Gospels. And same one that my wife is reading through with the Belong, some of the Belong ladies. And um, it's just been really um, powerful. But I have felt more weak and more unfocused in this time of the fast. You know? And yesterday, I had a thing called Chick-fil-A that kind of just threw me off from my fast. <laughs> I just want to confess that to you all. I don't get this right. I don't get this all perfect. I don't, I'm still trying to deal with my own hunger for things. But the one thing that really brings me to life is that every morning when we're struggling, literally I've been struggling to get out of bed, but every morning Caleb is right there and he's been reading the gospel. To finish Matthew today God is doing something in that boy God is doing something in you even when you're weak when you feel like nothing's working he is doing a million things you cannot see he's that big let that big God fill your hearts as we come I want to invite the worship team and the the prayer team to come forward as we come and close I want to invite you just to as we pray. I want to invite you to, as we fast, as we enter this new season, you might have bitterness, you might have struggles, you might have some issues that are happening that has thrown you off of the fast or just thrown you off of your, your year. And you're just saying, God, what, what is going on? What do I need? How do I fix this? And, and God is saying to you, come to me in weakness. Some time and say and confess your need for God. You can come to Him in repentance and say, Lord, I need you.